0: It's concerning many people look up to you and feel you give them permission to sleep train when a child needs a responsive caregiver to help them. That is from an email from a concerned reader in my Facebook community. In this episode, I'll share my thoughts on sleep training so that you can hopefully feel calm, cool, and confident in offering your child and yourself the best sleep. And stick with me until the end because this is a nuanced and triggering topic and it deserves in-depth conversation. I wouldn't want you to misunderstand the full context of the ideas presented here. You're listening to The Parenting Junkie Show, the place to go to love parenting and to parent from love. I'm your host, Avital. I'm Avital, hi, if you're just meeting me for the first time, I'm a mindful parenting coach, I'm the mother of four, I'm so honored that you've chosen to spend a little bit of time with me here today on this important topic of sleep. My goal is to help you, my fellow imperfect, intentional parent, to say goodbye to clutter, chaos, and conflict, and to reclaim peace, presence, and play for your family. Ladies and gentlemen, we're taking a very short recess from our regular parenting junkie programming to announce that Samantha Belrose from Australia has won this week's giveaway. Woo! woo Woohoo! Yay! Samantha, hey, what's up? I know Samantha very well because Samantha is a present player. She's an Empathic Limit. She's in Parent in Love. She is awesome. We love her. I have spoken to Samantha face-to-face via the computer. Okay, yes, via the computer, but still face-to-face. And we have a lot in common, don't we, Samantha? So it is so awesome that you were randomly selected to win and... What's especially awesome is that Samantha's in Australia on the other side of the world, but she's part of our community and we really connect and we know each other and we support each other and we have fun together and we learn together. And Samantha left me this awesome review. She said, At last, Avital, the parenting junkie, has released a podcast. So inspirational, such down-to-earth, usable, useful information that is also so much fun to listen to. Can't wait until the next one comes out. Yay, Samantha, I am so happy. So the way Samantha won was that she left a review on iTunes. Now, leave a review on iTunes, leave five stars, and you will be entered into the giveaway. If you're doing so outside of the US, please just let me know you've done so by also snapping a shot of your review and sharing it on Instagram. I don't see the reviews from outside the US, but I do wanna include you in the giveaway. We just add your name to the list and then we use a random selector, pick a number and pick a prize randomly. It's all randomly, you guys, but you can enter this giveaway several times because you can share on Instagram and on your stories and on your Facebook. And that way we will enter you each and every time we see you kind of in conjunction with the Parenting Junkie podcast, and sharing it out. I am so thrilled you've won, Samantha. Thank you for the five stars. And hey, here's your prize. Samantha, you will be sticking around for an extra year of present play. I know you may have been there anyway, probably, but it's on me. You won it. So you're getting it for free We love having you in our community and we're so excited to be offering you a year of present play, a whole year's membership. Now, guys, for those of you who don't know what present play is, you're like, what did she just win? Present play is our membership. It's our community. It is a movement to reclaim present, peace, and play for our children. It compiles of a global village. There are over 50 countries represented in present play in our members. Um, we have had over a thousand members come through Present Play and we are going to be growing big time this year. I cannot wait to welcome in many, many more members who are applying to the wait list this year. Uh, so Samantha, you're sticking around with us. <laughs> uh, you can't get away that fast. So we're so excited to keep you as a Present Player. Lots of love to you. And uh, all you need to do is just email us so that we can set you up with your prize. All right, let's get back to the episode. Here's an email I recently received. I'm really excited to join and be part of the Parenting Junkie tribe. I'm so happy to see you promote a respectful parenting approach. In most areas I can see by the Facebook forum a lot of people look up to you and respect your advice. One concern I have is on the forum a few people have mentioned you encourage and give permission for people to sleep train. I'm concerned as sleep training is most definitely not respectful to children and research has shown it can be detrimental to a child. It's concerning many people look up to you and feel you you give permission to sleep train when a child needs a responsive caregiver to help them. It's developmentally appropriate for children to need help to fall asleep and wake frequently, so how is it respectful to sleep train when their cries are their only way of communicating that they need help and comfort from a caregiver? That was one email I received recently, and here's another email in response to my video where I shared my struggles in sleep training, well, sleep supporting my newborn and here is what she wrote after I explained to her my situation and that my baby wasn't comforted being held he needed to just cry a little bit and then he fell asleep and that way we all got the best sleep and here's what she wrote to me after a few back and forth emails If a baby is overstimulated by your touch, something is not right as infants will die if they don't have close attachment in the wild. Trauma has ruptured that attachment. Trauma is stored up from in utero or from birth trauma or early medical interventions. Your baby has a lot of pent up feelings. Maybe seek out a professional. Your baby does not want to be touched could also be from sonograms during pregnancy or vaccines. That's why he might be so sensitive. Unfortunately, not every mom, and you reach thousands, that is looking at your video has the knowledge to use different approaches with their child, but they will see your video as a solution to their baby's sleep problems. Many will let their babies stress, cry it out. And this is just really bad for baby's brain development too. Please hear me when I say this should just not be the last video you do on this, especially if you know about these other approaches. Also, being there for your child at night is different from daytime parenting. So this new video should explore how to be a better parent at night. Uh, this new video is, uh, she's referring to a new video she wants me to create. You say you walked around for hours with your baby, but that's not the same as sitting with your son at night while he cries and holding him in your arms. This will take one or two hours, only the first times until he has released stress. If he can't do that with you, then with somebody else that, it's, that is equipped to do so. I totally understand some of the things are not possible with three other children, but that doesn't mean that you can't give other people the choice to explore more sensitive options as you had access to those yourself and not everybody had more children and they kind of get left behind. Here she's referring to the fact that i mentioned mentioned that not all of the options she wanted me to do were sustainable with three other children. And she said, I'm leaving other people in my audience behind if I'm only presenting them with the options of what I do for my child because I have four children and maybe they don't have that limitation. Please communicate better about leaving your baby to cry and stepping out of the room. Many stresses already happened, like other children and a busy career and many other factors for a baby to shut down on us and not want to be touched by their mother. If you put a video like this up, people will look further, will look no further than the symptoms, sleep, versus what's really going on. She's referring to this trauma. Of course, babies will cry will sleep if they cry alone. Cortisol levels rise and baby goes in a sleep-like state but is actually shut down from the pain. Babies will sleep in this state for a while but usually they end up having lifelong sleep problems from a bit older on which really isn't the real solution. Furthermore, you might know the different sorts of crying of your baby such as a falling asleep cry versus a stress cry but most mothers won't and they'll just blindly copy you. Please, could you clearly communicate that it's almost always better to hold your baby when he needs to cry or tantrum, and if they don't want that, then to stay near them and tell them that they can trust you and try closer proximity later. <sighs> then she says, Dr. Shafali doesn't say for nothing that the most conscious parents are the couples that don't have kids. After this, I'll stop giving information as you are a hand-in-hand instructor yourself, and you probably know all of this, but just have too many plates up in the air. Aware Parenting advocates for for no more children as there are caregivers, or not every child in the family will will reach its full potential. So here she's telling me that conscious and aware advocating says you should only have as many children as there are adults in the family, um, and I have too many plates up in the air, and that's why I'm unable to give my baby the type of care that he needs with regards to sleep. That said, I think you're an amazing and inspiring mom and person and love most of what you do. But this video should have a counter one talking about the aware parenting and hand-in-hand approach where we stay, listen to the crying while holding our child and making that a safe space. I wish you all the best and I'm hoping to see that new video soon. Awesome that you've answered me though. Really appreciate that too. Also sending you a big hug and lots of light for you and your babies. So. Thank you for that. I'm going to answer these emails and others in this episode Uh, and if you want the show notes for this episode, they can be found over at theparentingjunkie.com forward slash 11, number 11. Okay, so let's talk about sleep training, shall we? (laughs) And I'm sure you can imagine that those emails and those concerns weren't easy for me to receive and read, but I'm used to it and it goes with the territory and I think the best way for me to handle that type of thing is to consider it deeply, do my research, do my reading, do my inner work and thinking, see if this applies to me, see what of it applies to me, Um, try to look past maybe any attitude or language that isn't sensitive there and see if there are kernels of truth and, and then tease those apart. And what I'm going to do here is try and walk you guys through my approach to sleep and why it is the way it is. So I know that we're all kind of torn between these two extremes, right? The one is sleep training full-on sleep training. Maybe it's ferberizing, where you leave a baby to cry for predetermined amounts of time before going in to soothe. So say something like, I'll go in every five minutes to soothe, and then every 10 minutes, and then every 15 minutes, etc. Or Dr. Weisbluth's extinction method, where you leave a baby to cry for good, right? And I think for most of us who are in this kind of journey to peaceful parenting, these methods don't feel respectful in the sense that we're unresponsive to a baby's cries and distress, So a baby is crying and we're kind of looking at the clock and measuring or just completely unresponsive and either way those don't tend to feel good to us. But then the opposite direction right and of course there is research uh, in in lots of different directions and the truth is I don't want to get into the research here because I think it's confusing and conflicting Um, and I also I'll explain more why I think the research may not be helpful in your unique situation or in my unique situation soon. But yeah, some people, and I have also quoted the research that shows that when we just let a baby cry and we walk out and leave them alone for the night, just all of a sudden, um, they can feel extreme stress from that. I personally wouldn't use trauma in that case as a word to describe it. I think that's a little too extreme, but I think that they can find that very upsetting for sure the second one and maybe sorry maybe i'll i'll be you know disproved maybe someone will come and say that is absolutely trauma um but to, to me it doesn't seem so helpful to parents to call it that way but There we go. The second one, the second approach is not sleep training, right? We said sleep training, ferberizing Dr. Weiss Bluth's extinction method, just leaving a baby to cry or measuring the baby's cries, going in every so often in increments. That's one extreme, and it feels like we're just not responsive, we're not there for our children, we're not supporting them, we're just kind of abandoning them, neglecting them. It feels very um, it feels very unsupportive, right? Especially of a small baby. But then the other one is not sleep training. (laughs) And then not teaching our babies to sleep at all, that's the other end of that spectrum, perhaps co-sleeping continuously, Uh, perhaps getting up often at night, holding crying babies for long periods of time or sitting next to them or singing next to them or stroking next to them um, or sleep sleeping together with them, allowing them to sleep in our beds or nurse all night and feeling dehydrated all night or like our sleep quality is poor. Many of us don't co-sleep well and so our backs hurt or our hips hurt or we, we get so dried out and frustrated and we create these bad sleep habits or at least I say bad in quotation marks because that's up to you if it's bad or not but it feels Bad when you're sleep deprived and exhausted. Not to mention the fact that I have many clients who have literally been on the on the verge of or fall in to depression and mental illness and physical illness because they are exhausted. Not to mention that when you're exhausted, you have a miserable life and a miserable parenting life. So it actually compromises all of your daytime parenting as well, because you're exhausted, right? So I just want to say, if you feel triggered by any of these ideas in this episode or the exact words that I use, first of all, please give me the benefit of the doubt. Please use the most generous interpretation of my words because I'm trying to be careful with the words that I choose to describe things. But try and sense into my intention behind the words rather than the necessarily specific words that I'm saying in case they aren't the most accurate ones. Doing my best. It's a Difficult topic. But the ideas in this episode instead are here to serve you. So I want you to ask yourself how can you apply them to you? You know? And I want to address one of the things that one of these people wrote, which was that as someone with a big platform, you have a responsibility. They both wrote that in different ways. And sometimes people write that to me when they disagree with something that I've shared. They say, you have a responsibility to share um, this point of view because the point of view that you're sharing, uh, you know, your audience can't be trusted with that. As she said, you might be able to decipher your baby's different cries, but other moms who listen to you can't do that and they'll just blindly copy you and therefore you should never uh, allow them, give them that permission, as if it was mine to give, but give them that permission to sleep train. And I say sleep train, I mean teach your baby to sleep. I shouldn't give them that permission because I can't trust them and I have a big responsibility with that. And I've been told... Uh, I've been told that several times about sleep training so I've decided to just address it head on because I have a couple of thoughts. The first one is yes, I have a responsibility. I have a responsibility as anyone who comes out and shares information. I believe my responsibility is to be as authentic and truthful as I can and to serve my audience's highest good, to serve your highest good. I believe that shaming people who need sleep and who want their babies to sleep, um, or fear mongering about crying or about medical interventions is not serving you. I don't believe it serves your highest good is the most authentic and truthful thing that I can do to promote a fearful, you know, delicate, fragile and dogmatic approach to sleep. I believe that serving you is giving you the permission to give yourself the permission to do what is necessary in as peaceful and loving a way as you can to get the best sleep for your family. And so... That is how I view my responsibility. I also view my responsibility to be authentic about what truly works for me and for my clients. And this approach that these other parents are asking me to promote of simply waiting, of simply caregiving 100% and being responsive to every cry in the middle of the night for a year, for two years, for five years yet to come. I actually don't think that that is realistic in many cases. Some families are happy that way. Power to them. If it works for you and your child, that is great. But As we'll explore soon, I don't think that works for everybody. And I think it would be inauthentic of me to approve and to quote and to spread a message where it is not okay to teach your baby to sleep because that's not what I believe in and that's not what I practice with my own children. Um, I actually really disbelieve in it for myself. The second thing that I have to say about you have a big platform and you have responsibility is that I trust you, I trust my audience. I believe that your vibe attracts your tribe. I believe that this tribe is a phenomenal tribe. It's nuanced. It's in-depth thinkers. It's people who aren't interested in a dogmatic, one-size-fits-all parenting philosophy. It's people who are not coming to me as some guru and are swallowing whole anything that I say. They're coming to me. I believe that you are coming and listening to me because you're interested in being exposed to different ideas and having mindset shifts but you also trust your own intuition and your own filters and your own research and your own thinking. Any content creator would be absolutely gagged. You know, my hands would be tied if I couldn't trust that my audience will hear me in a way that I intend to be heard. If you are looking to somehow misunderstand what I'm saying or take it to an extreme, and if you are Expecting that what I'm saying is, you know, now holy words from the Bible that everybody needs to follow, you're in the wrong place and you're barking up the wrong tree. I'm here to give my best ideas on what loving, respectful parenting looks like. And that sometimes includes uncomfortable truths and it has to include authentic real life issues, even with people who have more than two children, like myself perhaps especially for them. And so today, I'm actually going to share lessons that I've learned about sleep And they're going to come in the form of questions, not answers, because I want to invite you here to ask these questions and answer them for yourself. I'll share some of my answers and the answers that I believe have helped many of my community members. But I do believe that the moms and dads who listen to me are able to discern what works for them and what doesn't, because that is core to my message. And so if I share that I let my baby cry himself to sleep and I explain the context and the Nuance, then I trust that you're going to interpret that in the most generous possible interpretation. And you're going to assume the best of me just as I assume the best of you. But it's less important to me what you think of me. You can judge me as much as you like. What's much more important is how you're going to apply that in your own life. If I say, I let my baby cry to sleep, you're going hopefully to read between the lines or listen to every single word I say because I actually spell it out in my video. And here, I spell out the context. I spell out the fact that my baby did not want to be rocked to sleep or held to sleep because he kept getting woken up and distracted. And I spell out the fact that I was not able to sit there for hours on end because every time he'd fall asleep on me, he would wake straight up again. And so another thing I want to say here is the importance of realizing just a little bit of, you know, eating a little bit of humble pie, um, with with love, I know a lot of people who have one child or maybe two. They're phenomenal parents, but sometimes what can happen when you have only one child is you associate a little bit too much meaning to your parenting. Of that child. You think that everything about that child is as a result of how you've parented. And what happens to those of us who have more than one child, and I feel very blessed and lucky to have four, um, but what happens the more children you have, the more you realize just how much of their temperament is built in that they're born with it and that our parenting is very important and how we choose to treat their sleep is very important, but that they are also heavily uh, encoded, you know, embedded with their own approach to these things. And so when people like these people who have written into me, uh, who have that singular experience with their child and with being able to offer a specific type of parenting and, I, you know, God bless them, that's wonderful, you know, good for them, power to them. I just think it's worth considering and realizing that every situation is different and that every child is different and therefore all of these prescriptive ideas can be really helpful but aren't necessarily applicable in every situation. They were largely applicable to my first three children and they weren't to my third, And that is not, in my opinion, because he was traumatized, although of course, everybody has some, I don't know, birth trauma. I don't think it's helpful to come and tell me that he was traumatized by sonograms or that he was traumatized by vaccinations and have fear mongering around the miracles of modern medicine. I don't think that's helpful to me. I don't think it's helpful to come and criticize me and say, well, you've got too much on your plate and you shouldn't have had more children because to be a conscious parent, you need as many adults as children because I think all of this is unsensitive and un. Uh, attuned to the very wide variation of human experience and the very wide variation of good ways of raising children. The fact that yeah, sure, I could definitely be a more patient and conscious parent to one or maybe two children, but there are also pros and cons to that, just as there are pros and cons to having more children. So I, I'm just taking this example and this opportunity to, to, to kind of pick apart this email that somebody sent me um, to point out the flaws and the judgments in that type of thinking. Some of the flaws are what I've said, that I think we do have to trust each other and trust each parent's nuance and their ability to sense into their intuition. Um, Some of it is about realizing that there are lots of different temperaments. So the reason my baby was crying isn't necessarily to do with trauma. I don't think it was, although I respect that person's right to their opinion. But I also am in touch with my own you know, wisdom and my own connection and bond with my baby. It's not that he didn't want me to touch him. It's that he's highly alert and very aware of what's going on. And I'm like that too. I find it extremely disruptive when people touch me while I'm sleeping. And I respect that in him. And I think that's absolutely fine. And there's no need to uh, pathologize him and say, or pathologize me and say that it's because of some trauma. She also mentioned that it's because there are other children and there's a busy, and I have a busy career. And so he's got so much stress. I think that's a very fragile view of my baby or of any baby. I think babies are born into the hustle and bustle of a family and of real life and they don't need anything sterile or perfect and they can absolutely handle a busy career and big siblings and all of that is wonderful but if it's distracting them from sleeping then it's fine for them to sleep alone and without that stress. And so that is why uh, I disagree with those ideas in that email. But now let's go into some of the helpful questions that I want you to ask yourself. So first of all, what does sleep training mean? I think it's really important because if we're having a conversation about sleep training, then maybe we all need to get on the same page with the definition of sleep training. Some people think sleep training means at a certain time, maybe very early, maybe as early as two or three months, you decide How long you want your baby to sleep, you put them on a very fixed schedule, you measure the ounces in their bottle, you measure the minutes in their naps, and you walk out of the room and you let them cry indefinitely until they fall asleep, right? That's some people's definition of it. Other people might think it's about sitting next to the child and singing to them until they fall asleep and then doing what Kim West calls the baby sleep shuffle, um, where you slowly, slowly move further and further away and remove yourself from that situation. Very gentle method, very respectful method. It's also sleep training, right? That's training a child to sleep without dependency. So some people think it's about putting your baby down just as you finish nursing, but before they're fully asleep. I don't know. There are lots of different definitions to sleep train. That's a blanket word and it means a lot of different things to different people. It's kind of like saying don't medicate. Well, That depends, doesn't it? (laughs) If there's medication that's going to save a child's life or that's going to really help them with discomfort or whatever, you know, what is the alternative? Which medication do we mean? How, when, why? What are the motivations? What are the, you know, chemical reasons for it? We need to just calm down a little bit. And when someone writes to me that I shouldn't be giving people permission to sleep train, I guess I need to reply, well, what did you mean by that? When I say permission to teach your baby to sleep, that's what I mean. And now we can go into the nuances of it. But the point is, you don't have to just succumb to forever getting up all of the time, or rocking them to sleep, or, or, or night wakings until they just naturally grow out of it. I don't think that's necessary either. And let's talk a little bit about this nature thing because, of course, it's important for us to understand human nature, etc. But One of the things this woman wrote to me was that babies would die in the wild if they didn't want their parents to touch them. And to this, I have to say, yes, okay, that's fair enough. There are many things that we can learn from indigenous peoples, from tribal living, from primates, from the wild, from other nature sources, whatever understanding what humans how humans might live in the wild is helpful okay what this animal of a human is when it's in the wild that's interesting but then we also have to apply it to our cultured you know life what our specific culture looks like so there are many things that we might do with a baby that wouldn't be able to happen in the wild we wouldn't be clothing them uh, we wouldn't be vaccinating them. I know many of us aren't, but that wouldn't be an option. You know, we wouldn't be feeding them uh, with a spoon. <laughs> there are so many, many things that wouldn't happen in the wild. You wouldn't be able to pump milk. You wouldn't be able to have any of the medical help and assistance that many of us need during birth. Um we wouldn't be able to drive them around in a car. So my definition of what I do and don't do with my baby is not just what's available in nature. That's one level, level, one layer, right? One part of it. It informs me, it inspires me, but then I also have to consider what happens in my real life. In the wild, I wouldn't have to make money. But I do, and I have a job and I need to show up to it and I can't be completely exhausted to it. And so that factors in, right? I mean, there are so many things that factor in. In the wild, my baby would be in actual danger if they were left to cry. My baby would be eaten by a wolf if I left him to cry in the wild. But that is not going to happen at home. He is not in actual danger. And so, you know, he's not in physical danger of being eaten. And so, yes, his response is maybe to that initial, you know, primal situation, but my response doesn't have to be. I can still teach him to about what is happening in my reality, in our culture, and he can adapt to that. And here's the beautiful thing, is that babies are incredibly adaptive. And we'll talk about that soon as well. Here's my next question, what does crying mean? This mother who wrote to me suggested that the people who listened to my advice, can't differentiate between their babies' cries. And I beg to differ. I believe that you can. I believe that you should be empowered to and trusted to, and you should trust yourself to. And I believe it's crucially important to, because just a blanket statement, respond to every cry, I think expects babies to be these fragile, um, you know, little beings uh, that can't handle you know, a few moments while mommy's having a shower or maybe they're crying when someone other than mommy is holding them. You know what? My babies would often cry just from the cold air when I was changing their diaper or putting them on the potty. Does that mean that was traumatizing? Was it traumatizing when I changed their clothes and they cried? This again comes back to temperament. There are so many different types of babies. Different babies cry for different reasons I had one of my babies cried when I bathed him. So should I not have bathed him? You know, we need to really understand that if a baby is giving a blood-cuddling scream when we change their diaper, it doesn't mean that changing their diaper is disrespectful. Crying is communication, but how we respond to that communication doesn't always have to be the same. It doesn't always have to be picking up a baby and putting them on the boob. There are lots of other ways to respond to cries. And as there are so many different types of cries, I think it's absolutely crucial if we want to be respectful parents that we learn to listen to them, decipher them, trust our intuition here, understand that there are lots of different feelings that need to be let out and that it's okay. It's okay to listen. It's okay to not respond to every single cry as well. Of course, I advocate for responsive parenting. Of course, I try to respond to my baby when they're upset. I try to respond to every cry I do, but I think it's okay not always to be able to do that immediately. You want to respond in a somewhat timely fashion, in an appropriate manner, but sometimes you're just doing something else, or you've just had it up to here and you're about to lose it and you need to calm yourself down, or you feel that your baby is particularly strong willed and intense, and they cry very loudly even about Things that clearly aren't so distressful or not things that you need to save them from, like a little bit of frustration. We know this from older children, right? I mean, you've met older children or adults. Adults, you know, let me take the example of me and my husband. My husband is a very even-keeled kind of guy. His emotional life doesn't have extreme ups and extreme downs. It's pretty much a very uh, shallow wave, all, always the same kind of tone. You know, his best, best days and his worst, worst days aren't that different because he's a chill kind of guy in that way. I'm more enthused. <laughs> I'm more intense emotionally, right? When I'm upset, I can be very upset. And when I'm happy, I can be elated Babies have that same different spectrum of intensity of emotions as well. So some babies are going to just moan a little bit, even when they're in intense pain, you know, and some babies are going to absolutely scream just because there was something they didn't prefer, like their diaper being changed. So from the outside, if you're there to judge and to say, oh, that baby, you know, that baby's crying, so you have to do something about it, something specific that I have, you know, decided you need to do. You need to go and comfort them. You need to do this. You need to do that. Maybe you don't know that baby very well. that That's a possibility. Or maybe you don't understand their cries very well. I also think, you know, this woman, one of these women was were writing me an email about that the method she wanted me to promote was, if a baby is crying when they're sleeping and you need to get them to sleep that they probably need to express built up trauma and therefore you should hold them in your arms and let them cry so that they're expressing their feelings fully and when they're completely done with that and they fall asleep then you can put them down. That can be wonderful, that can be healing, that can be beautiful and it can also be unwise in certain situations, right? In certain situations if if we Don't feel that that's what the baby is wanting or needing. If holding the baby is actually keeping them up when they're trying to sleep, you know, a baby might not be expressing built-up trauma. They might be expressing built-up exhaustion, as my baby was, and I'm absolutely convinced of it. I I feel very strongly that it wasn't a trauma that was being processed, although maybe there was some of that. But what was happening was a repetitive pattern of sleep deprivation, and my baby was desperate to sleep. And when I was holding him, he was super frustrated. His eyes kept closing, he was trying to fall asleep, but then he was distracted, and he could not sleep. When I put him down, he cried for a little bit and had a great nap, and everybody was happy. So I think that it can be respectful, but it can also be disrespectful and it can also be too taxing. But not, that's not my main problem with it, the too taxing part. My main problem with it is I don't think it's always appropriate to hold a baby. I think sometimes it's respectful to let babies let out their feelings, but not necessarily to hold them. Maybe you sit next to them. Maybe you come in and check on them. Maybe you're there to actually show them clearly that this is now time to sleep, and you're holding a clear and firm and empathic, loving boundary because you care about them and you care about their health and you care about their sleep. So, of course, we have to let babies let their feelings out. I don't believe in pacifying. I don't believe in shushing, in stuffing a pacifier in their mouth, in trying to stop them crying. I don't think that's the point at all. We don't need to stop them crying. We can allow them to cry and allow them to have their space and their independence and fall asleep in the safety of their crib or of their sleep surface with or without our proximity, depending on your baby and their needs. It's contextual. It's different for every child and it's different for every parent. When I received this email, I spoke to one of my friends who I value so highly. She's an incredible parent. And I told her about this and I said, you know, I'm so confused about this email I just received. She said, I should be holding my baby because he's got trauma built up from sonograms, vaccinations and pregnancy. And he, he he's so traumatized that he doesn't want me to touch him. And it's my fault because I have three other kids and I'm not you know able to spend time with him and I should be holding him to sleep. And I said to her, you know, I did that. I did that for hours. When he was a newborn, I would hold him for hours and hours, and I kept both of us exhausted because he kept looking at me. (laughs) Even though I tried not to make eye contact or whatever, he was just too stimulated by being held. It was the sweetest thing. He's so alert and so interested and so curious, and he was keeping his eyes open until I found the use of the eye mask And that really helped and he managed to get his sleep. But I uh, let him, I I said, you know what, sweetie, I'm just going to let you have your space. I'm going to put you down. And yes, he moaned. He cried a little bit, but I could hear that that was the type of cry of a very tired baby who just needs to fall asleep. And when he did, he was very happy. So my friend said to me, when I told her all of this, I was like, I was confused. Like, did I do the wrong thing? Am I traumatizing him? What is this woman talking about? She said... Babies need to be allowed to cry sometimes. And sometimes they need to be allowed to cry in your arms. And sometimes they need to be allowed to cry in their bed so that they can just really let it out and relax. And that depends on the child. That depends on their personality. And so that's my thoughts on that. We have to understand what crying means. You have to listen. Is it distressed? Is it frustrated? Is it unsure? Is it a baby who's just super intense and so they cry very loudly and very screaming but they're actually just expressing energy, and letting go of some feelings and then they're ready to sleep? Or is it a baby who is truly scared and feels abandoned and that's okay too and then we can be there for them? It's okay for us to trust ourselves with that and to truly listen and to just try and be driven by what's holistically better for both, both of us in the big picture? Not in this specific moment, but in the big picture in the long run, what would serve us all the best? And of course, attuning to this specific moment as well. My next question is, is sleep deprivation respectful? And this is something I need to say to anyone who says you mustn't give people permission to sleep train. What is the alternative? Is the alternative this idea that we need to nighttime parent several times a night? We need to allow our children to co-sleep with us until they are ready to leave. We need to feed on demand until they self-wean. All of the attachment parenting theories, they're beautiful. And I have many friends who live by them to the T. And if it works for you, then keep doing you, you know, keep doing you. you, you keep doing what works for you. My concern is with those of you who are listening, who are saying, no, it is not working for me. I'm exhausted. I'm depleted. I'm upset. I'm angry. I'm resentful of my child. I'm resentful of my partner. I am feeling on the verge of depression or of mental illness. I am giving poor quality of care during the day because I'm so tired. I'm angry. Uh, You know, I'm yelling. How about I'm establishing bad sleep habits and I'm not able to break them and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like it's dragging on and on and it's The price that we're paying is too high. When people say don't sleep train, I think that's a dangerous thing to say because you have to always consider the alternative. Any dogmatic teaching like that, any dogmatic rule, doesn't consider the price that you're telling people to pay. Is the alternative depression? Is the alternative aggressive, angry parenting during the day or resentment building up? Is that better? So Harvard can come out with as much research as they like about sleep training. My question is, what does it mean for you? What's the alternative in your home? If you're not sleep training and you are feeding on demand and co-sleeping and getting up several times a night for five years and that's fine and you're happy and you feel connected and your child is thriving and you're all getting enough sleep, go for it. But if that's not the case, then you need to put the research and all this well-meaning advice to one side for a moment and ask yourself one minute, is this okay in my family? Am I managing? Am I making the right decision? What is the cost? What is the hidden cost of not sleep training? And we need to really look at that. It's a big deal, okay? What is the alternative to not teaching my child to sleep? Is it sitting with a child crying in my arms for a few hours a night? Maybe, maybe that's the choice you need to make. Maybe that's what works for you. Maybe that's what feels healing to you. Maybe that's what feels attuned to you. It wasn't for me. And I'll get into that in a minute and I'll tell you why. But my next question is, is frustration bad? Is frustration bad? Is frustration in a learning curve bad? Now, let me just say, I'm not advocating for leaving a baby to cry alone in a room. I'm not advocating for or against that. I'm saying it's much more complicated than that. I'm saying that there are many more factors that factor in. I do sometimes leave some of my babies at some stages alone to cry in a room for a certain amount of time. That happens in my home and I'm not ashamed of it and I think it's okay. I think they're okay because there's a lot of context around that. A lot of nuanced thinking around that. And I'll go further and say that the judgment and fear-mongering and finger-pointing to parents who are doing this is sometimes worse for the child than whatever it was the parent was doing. Because when you make a parent feel lack of confidence, feel guilty, feel confused, feel upset with themselves and like they don't know what they're doing and feel also like They need to doubt themselves and then they become hesitant and then they go back and forth and they become inconsistent. I think that's worse for that child than a parent who makes a decision about what's best for their family and goes with it confidently, wholeheartedly and consistently and gets a good result. Because whilst I wish that no babies would be left alone to cry in rooms and feel abandoned and feel neglected, I wish even more that all families felt that they were well-equipped, that they could trust themselves, that they could make decisions, that they could follow through with things and that they could get healthy habits in place for their family. Healthy sleep, I think, is so important. And I think that the root of so many behavioral problems and health problems today can be traced back to unhealthy sleep habits. And so I think it's paramount that we empower parents to find the way to do it, the way to teach babies to sleep, and I'll tell you how I do it with my babies in just a minute. But let me just ask you, is frustration bad? Can we not trust babies that they can manage a little bit of a challenge when it's what's best for the family? Are we labeling normal development as traumatic as trauma from birth or trauma from sonograms or from vaccinations. This makes us parents so anxious that we're doing it wrong, that we've made bad decisions to the point of trauma. How is this a helpful point of view? I don't think these children who are crying to sleep are traumatized necessarily or more traumatized than any other human anywhere in the world because we've all, you know, been born. I think they're simply not yet Able to fall asleep by themselves. And yes, that's developmentally appropriate. And it's also appropriate for us to support them in learning to do that. In order to learn to walk, you have to fall. And maybe in order to learn to fall asleep by yourself without waking your parents up several times a night, there needs to be a little bit of crying, a little bit of expression. I don't know. Maybe it's a thought. Maybe if we lived in a tribe where we all slept around a fire and the babies all slept on, you know, adults' tummies and there were several adults to every child and there was no work to get up for in the morning and you could sleep during the day as much as you wanted and you are a hunter-gatherer, then maybe there was never ever any crying. And that's great, but maybe in our culture when we do need those, you know, systems in place when we need to sleep properly because we have to function, like driving a car or going to work, and we don't have other adults around, maybe a little bit of crying is okay. I don't know. I'm not saying it is or it isn't in that case. I'm just saying it's something to think about. But I also think as in Rye's teaching, you know, and the Rye method may be something that you're interested in as a school of thought that promotes both respect and sleep learning you know, I don't fully agree with all of Rai's teachings or teachers. And you can watch my videos on the topic. I have two videos on the topic. Um, and that will explain a little bit deeper of what I mean when I say permission to sleep train. But in Rye, one of the things I love that they teach is Respecting a baby's independence and a baby's autonomy and a baby's space and a baby as an individual and a baby as a strong individual and saying, when I communicate, now it's time to sleep, you're tired, good night, and I leave the room, that it's actually an act of respect allowing you to release your cries and go to sleep. Because I don't see you as fragile and breakable, and I don't think that's, you know, some awful traumatic thing that I'm doing to you. Instead, I'm saying, no, you can handle this. You're going to learn to sleep. You're going to sleep well. You're going to sleep when it's time to sleep, when you're tired. And it's okay if you need to cry a little bit, you'll do so. And to me, that might be more similar to letting a two-year-old let their feelings out when they have a tantrum. Do I rush to pacify or soothe? No. Do I necessarily hold them? No, none of my toddlers have wanted to be held while they're having a tantrum. None of them have wanted to be touched. Again, I don't think that's because of ruptured attachment between us. I think that's because when you're having big feelings and you need to express it, you need space. You just wanna let it out. You've got this rawr, you know, inside of you and you let it out and then you feel better. And then you can relax and then you wanna snuggle onto mommy. Or then you wanna go to sleep or then you wanna move on with your day. Another question that comes up for me is is it all or nothing and this is where I want to explain a little bit about what I do but this all or nothing idea do you sleep train or not right do you hold them when they cry or not am I the only one who sees that as just as kind of a sterile and unrealistic way of describing this can we not say no to some night feedings but yes to others Can we not sleep learn at some ages, but not at others? Can we not agree to some soothing, but not to others? You know, I don't give my children, my last two children, I haven't offered them pacifiers. Um, I may not... Uh, offer certain, rocking, for example. I don't rock babies to sleep. Why? Because I did that with my first and all I got was a bad back and a baby who was completely dependent on rocking. And so some people tell me, but that's the natural way they're used to being rocked. Okay, but it's not good for me. So I'm not gonna do it. I believe that you can choose which things you are able to and want to provide for your baby in terms of soothing and sleep support and which you are not. And your baby will adjust and respond to that just as you're adjusting and responding to them. You know, so I don't offer rocking, but I do nurse my babies to sleep. I nurse them almost to sleep, not fully to sleep usually, but I nurse them before they sleep, whether or not it's, you know, a feeding time or not. If they're tired and I'm the one putting them to bed, I'll generally nurse them. You know, uh, there, there are so many variations to this. Maybe you allow your baby to fall asleep in a carrier when they're in a nap. Maybe you'll say, well, my baby is ready to get up just once during the night to feed or just twice, but not four times. Look, that's the stage I'm at currently. Let me just share my process with my last child and how that it's it's somewhat similar to my other kids, but there are differences too. Some of my children, two in particular, were great sleepers. They liked to sleep. They they were easy to put to sleep. They easily transitioned into longer and longer hours of sleep at night. Um, And so it was a pretty smooth process. I did the Kim West sleep shuffle. I followed Batya Sharizen, Batya the baby coach's advice. And I slowly, gradually removed myself from their sleep. So in the beginning, as a newborn, they stepped you know, pretty well and they would fall asleep on the, on the breast and then I would put them down and it was somewhat erratic. I never had a fixed schedule for the first three or four months for the, that fourth trimester time was typically they were sleeping in a carrier, in the stroller or at home, but it wasn't a fixed schedule. And then slowly, slowly they started to become a little bit more, uh, you know, regimented themselves. It just became more clear when they were having their naps, etc., And around the age of nine months, with all my babies, I've decided, okay, enough is enough. Because up until nine months, I would probably nurse them about four times a night or three times a night. And around the age of nine months, they started crawling around in my bed, scratching me, getting up, talking, you know, jabbering at me. And my sleep deprivation became a real issue. And at that point, I said, okay, wait, enough is enough. I have to get my sleep back on track. And around that time, I transitioned them into their own crib at night, um, you know, at first near me, and then maybe in their own room because I'm a very light sleeper and that was the only way I could really get them to fall asleep and stay asleep during the night. And I would typically go in for another one, maybe two night nursings and then gradually phase those out. And so... Maybe I would sit next to them and stroke them to sleep and move my chair slowly out the door, you know, each and every night, etc. So there were different ways of doing that. And 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 I, I recommend looking into those processes and, and seeing which one works for you. But with this last baby, my 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 little sweetie pie, who's now nine months old, at the time of this recording, um, to begin with as a newborn, he was very alert. He was very, very alert and he didn't just fall asleep even in the carrier, which was always my go-to with my others. He just kept his eyes open. You could see his eyes like closing and he would open them because he didn't want to miss anything. He was such an alert baby and... I used a sleep mask a little bit, a baby sleep mask in the carrier when I could watch him and see that he was safe with it. And that was very effective until he got a little bit older. And when he was around five months, he started being able to kind of shuffle that off and he didn't like that anymore. But at that time, there were days when I was really distressed and nervous for his health because he would go so long without a nap. And I could see that he was just being weak as a result. He was exhausted and and upset. And so I started deciding, okay, I'm putting him down. I'm going to nurse him until he's sleepy. And then I'm putting him down and I'm just leaving the room. I'm going to listen to the monitor and make sure he falls asleep. And I would do that. And it would take time. I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour, however long it took. Um, He would cry, but never in a way that I thought, he was distressed. I thought that he was trying to fall asleep. And eventually he did. And I was very, uh, you know, of course I was torn. I didn't like that I had to do that. I preferred him not to be crying. But ultimately I relied on the right teachers and on that respectful philosophy. And I also consulted with some respectful sleep coaches. And I said, look, he's just not he is not comforted when I pat him on his back or when I'm nursing him or when I'm doing all of that stuff. He keeps getting woken up by that. And they said, then that type of temperament, that type of child needs to be alone to fall asleep properly. Let him. And I did. And I'm so happy I did because I feel that I put his health first and my own, my own sanity as well. But this is not because I had three other children and I couldn't, be there for him i would have done whatever it took this was out of ideology out of choice this is what i felt this particular child needed and now he is 9 months old and at night time he had been sleeping you know at first in his own crib and then in my bed after the first feeding but after the first feeding at about 10 p.m. he would keep me up all night because he was nursing all night. I was extremely dehydrated, extremely exhausted, getting very depleted. He wasn't sleeping very well because he kept crawling around and trying to play with me in the night. As I say, he's a very alert child. So me being there is exciting for him. And now we've just moved him into a room next door to mine and he just started sleeping through the night. And if he cries once during the night, I'll go to him change his diaper. I'll feed him. And then I leave him back in this bed. And if he cries a little bit, so be it. He goes back to sleep and sleeps until the morning. And he's getting so many hours of solid, healthy sleep at this point, And so am I. And so... That has been my approach. And now that I know that he can do those long stretches at night, that he only needs about one feeding a night, I'm not gonna be offering him more than one unless I really feel, gosh, you know, today he's really hungry or today he's not feeling good or he really needs it. Otherwise, I'm not gonna be offering that at night and I'm comfortable holding that firm, empathic limit. So it's very nuanced, it's very specific and unique to each child. But here's the final point, okay? We have to trust ourselves. My question here is, can we not trust ourselves? We need to trust our intuition. We need to trust our babies, that they're okay, that we're okay, that our culture is okay. We can have a lot of criticism of our culture and everything, but at the end of the day, we're not living in the forest with hunter-gatherers. We're not in that situation. So we can take what we learn from there. It's wonderful and beautiful, but then we also have to apply it to our real lives and to our unique, specific temperamental babies and ourselves and our situations. And so context is absolutely everything. When you say, should you sleep train or should you not sleep train? Is sleep training traumatizing or is it in fact responsible parenting? Well, that all depends on the context. That all depends on what you mean by sleep training, on your baby, on how old they are, on how you're doing it, on the intention behind it, on the way that you're doing it, on the attitude, on the duration. All of those things matter. It matters greatly. It's kind of like saying, is sugar good for kids? Well, you know just up front we'd say no right we'd say no sugar is poison but guess what a couple of years ago my daughter had a tummy bug was vomiting got terribly dehydrated and her sugar levels dropped terribly and when I took her to the hospital because she was floppy and unresponsive they gave her a lollipop and that was what she needed to save her She needed a lollipop. She needed sugar. So in that case, sugar wasn't bad for her at all. Sugar was absolutely necessary because her blood sugar levels were so low that it was actually dangerous for her. I have a friend whose child has type 1 diabetes. She absolutely needs sugar in some cases, and in other cases, she absolutely does not. And so it depends is the answer. Is sleep training right? It depends. Look at jalapeno peppers. Remember, The example I've given in other podcasts of spicy foods in the culture that I grew up in, in London, you eat very bland food, (laughs) steamed broccoli is what we feed babies. But in South America, babies are routinely exposed to spicy foods because that's part of the culture. And the expectation is that they will like it. And they do because people are incredibly adaptive and they adapt to what that culture expects of them. Is spicy food traumatic for a baby? Yeah, if you give it to my baby, it will traumatize him, maybe. But if you give it to a baby who's being exposed to that and taught to like and enjoy spicy foods and developing his palate in that direction, then it's not at all traumatizing. Is sleep training traumatizing? Is sleep training disrespectful? Well, it's disrespectful if all of a sudden one day you take a baby who up until now has been nursing through the night and, you know, being looked after and played with all night through the night and suddenly put him in a room by himself, shut the door and let him cry for hours solid and say, that's it, I'm done. Yeah, that would be disrespectful. But if there's a context to it, a buildup, a communication If you are listening to your baby's cries, if you're deciding what is best for you and your baby, if you are taking into account your baby's unique temperament and your unique situation and how it might work for you, if you're staying in touch with your intuition and listening to yourself and to your inner wisdom, if you are setting it up in a way that is somewhat gradual and supported, where you're there for your baby, you're comforting them, you're figuring it out, you're pacing it, you're taking the schedule and looking, okay, here's what we're working towards and slowly, slowly removing yourself from the situation and slowly, slowly building your baby's skill, then no, I don't think it's disrespectful. I think it's hugely respectful because you are putting their health front and center. In the end, we each need to do what we feel comfortable with. I feel comfortable with firm empathic limits even from the get-go not with a newborn, because for me personally, that just doesn't feel right. I feel like with the first four months or so, it's all about just attunement and responsiveness to the extent that I can. But then slowly, slowly, I think it's about introducing a little bit more limits, a little bit more boundaries, a little bit more expectations very gradually, very slowly, in a supportive way, in a supported way, and in a way that takes into account my own resources. As the mother of four, I don't think I have to apologize to my youngest one that he's the youngest of four. I don't think that was a mistake or something that bad that happened to him that he doesn't have my full attention. I think he gains a lot from it. It's okay. But yeah, it means that This is the reality he's in and he's going to adapt like an absolute champ. He's not a fragile, traumatized, poor little kid whose mummy isn't available to him and who has too many plates in the air. He's doing just great. His temperament is fine just the way it is. And I need to be empowered just like you need to be empowered to respond and attune to this particular child because I know him well and he deserves that. Seeing as this is such a confusing, triggering, and emotional topic, I just want to summarize some of the things I do and don't believe in and try to advocate for, or what's been true in my experience at least. So it's not that I believe in suddenly letting a baby cry for long hours. I certainly don't. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't even believe in timing increments and just letting them cry until they get used to it. In most cases, I think that's probably going to be not the most respectful, peaceful, connected, or helpful approach. And I do believe in doing what feels good and maximizes sleep for the whole family, including you. So if bed sharing, uh, night nursing, you know, on and on, all of that stuff is good for you, keep doing you, keep doing what's good for you and that's great but I also believe that there are lots of types of crying and sometimes we need to decipher and learn to listen and to know our babies, right? Sometimes they're releasing stress, sometimes they're releasing trauma and energy or expressing and sometimes they're just frustrated and they're learning something new but something important and worthwhile. So we need to get to know our babies and just listen to our intuition and not become alarmist and not become overly fear-mongering towards ourselves or towards other parents about what those cries mean. Sometimes it's okay for a baby to just cry for a little bit and go to sleep and sometimes it's just that and we don't need to read more into it. I think that that's true in my case some of the time and if it's true for you then I hope that you feel validated there. I do believe that crying is often involved in learning to sleep and that that's okay. I believe that sleep is incredibly important. It really is. Sleeplessness is a form of torture for both babies and adults and if we were living in the rainforest we would behave in one way but we're not and so there are other things that we need to take into account. So crying might be involved, crying might be involved, but there's a difference between a parent respectfully, lovingly putting a baby to sleep and letting them cry to sleep, maybe being there and stroking them, maybe singing, maybe coming in and out to check on them. Maybe just letting them cry for a while until they fall asleep. There's a difference between that and between some regimented, cold, controlled, uh, you know, calculated approach to babies that doesn't take into account the relationship, where they're at, the types of crying, the types of exhaustion, the whole packet really. The cost-benefit analysis to the whole family, including maternal health and well-being. I don't believe that letting babies cry themselves to sleep when that's what feels most loving and that's what prioritizes their health and wellness is damaging or unrespectful. I think it can be damaging and unrespectful, but it doesn't have to be. Again, it 100% depends on the context. And I don't believe that parents should be shamed for not having the capacity or the interest to sit for long hours with crying babies. Not that that is always the right thing for that babies either. I don't believe that either. It's not the right thing for every baby's personality. Some babies need the quiet, need the calm, need the consistency consistency need that firm boundary to get the sleep that they need and that that's okay for them. Some babies don't like sleeping in a carrier. Some babies don't like sleeping in arms. Some babies need a quiet, calm room that's dark and a non-moving surface. And some babies need to be rocked to sleep in a, in a carrier or in a, in a stroller for a while, and that's okay too. You need to do what works for you. I don't believe parents should be shamed for this. I absolutely believe it's more important that you feel confident, calm, connected to your baby and that you're prioritizing your basic health needs of you and your child more than any particular methodology. I think intention and the energy with which we do things is more important than the exact method or technique that we use. And if anything I've said sounds anything other than liberating and supportive, then I hope you can re-listen and understand the intention with which I'm saying these words. I'm only speaking based on my own personal experience and the experience of my clients and saying, I think we need to empower each other to reclaim sleep, healthy sleep for our children, for ourselves, using firm, empathic and kind, calm and connected boundaries. To me, that is the utmost respectful thing to do next week I'm going to be sharing with you what to do when you feel like you just can't stand your child you feel so irritated and like you just want them to leave you alone that's coming next week And remember, keep on loving parenting and parenting from love. Namaste.